Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians on the folk scene. Get ready for a deep dive into a life lived through music in the studio, on the road, and now more than ever, online. If we're lucky, they might even play us a tune and help us figure out what folk music is really all about. Before we get started, a little bit of business. FolkPod is a labor of love, and a whole lot of work goes into every episode. I've heard from a lot of you how much you're enjoying it. So we've put a virtual tip jar up on our website, thefolkpod.com. Please consider leaving us a tip to help pay for the real costs that go into creating this series. There are other ways that you can show your appreciation, too. Like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheFolkPod. And leave us great reviews to help other fans find us. And now, on to this week's guest, Ellis Paul. Ellis is a touring singer-songwriter, teacher, mentor, artist, children's music and book writer, and the hardest working man in the folk community. Welcome, Ellis Paul. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. I'm super excited to chat with you. Congratulations on starting this. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. I've had a chance, of course, to chat with a bunch of people that we both know and love, and it's been an honor, and I've learned a lot, and I think the fans have learned a lot, and the fans have found new artists to look into, which is what it's all about for me. I just want to introduce friends and people out there to the artists, so thanks for doing this. My pleasure. God, you've probably done a million of these interviews, I bet. A million is a lot, but maybe over a thousand. I mean, I think probably over a thousand, but a million, not, not quite. Well, well, sometimes I like doing this in chronological order. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about how you started with music in your life. How did it all start for you? I had these parents that were interested in putting crayons in my hand and instruments in my hand. And they wanted Dizzy Gillespie or Picasso or someone like that, you know, Hemingway to grow up in their household. <laughs> And then when they got me, they were like looking at me like Frankenstein, like they had nothing to do with it. But when I was in third grade, my father hauled me into an auditorium to watch Doc Severinsen play trumpet. He was, as you know, the leader of Johnny Carson's You're band. Kidding. Yeah. So I went to see this incredible show. It was the first concert that I had ever been to of any merit. And I woke up the next day and there was a trumpet at the end of my bed. Oh, how old were you? So I started playing trumpet in third grade. Okay. So what is that? Maybe a nine, 10, something like yeah. that. Yeah. I stayed with it all the way through high school and we lived in Maine eventually. And we had a really great band program and a good chorus program in my high school and where people were taking it seriously. You know, we were in state competitions. The stage band won two years, the state competition that we were in. So, and a few people in the band ended up becoming uh, professional musicians, including me. So there was that kind of love for it. And I was also an athlete and I got a track scholarship to Boston College and I was a division one runner and I had to drop music and art and all of that in order to just do school and compete. Wow. And I missed it. So I, I ended up picking up a guitar on the side just to mess around with in my dorm room. And I think, you know, the songwriting bug and the sound of the guitar and singing and all of those, all of those things that guitar playing and singing does to you both emotionally and socially and meeting people and meeting girls. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I think like I didn't have an in any other way. So at least I had that. <laughs> Stop. Come on. You just got to use whatever tools you're given. And 
That's a good one. It's not a bad one. I got to be honest. It's not a bad one. Oh, too cute. Did you think about jazz any further or did you kind of just stick with the guitar and was jazz part of it? Honestly, like it might be folk and then jazz and then polka. If you're going down the, <laughs> if you're going down the, uh, the line of the least lucrative music forms, even Hawaiian slack key guitar is above us. So, You're right, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> I almost went to Berkeley College of Music, but then they didn't have a track program. So they weren't division one. Ooh. And I just decided BC was where I'd end okay. up. Did you see yourself competing higher up? I know you were injured at some point, but do you ever think about the Olympics? I thought about it a lot in, in high school because in high school, I finished second in the country in my age division in cross country and, you know, and I was state champion. So there were a lot of Big dreams attached to what I could do with it. But honestly, the workload mm -hmm. to be that good is so astronomical. You really literally have to run 100, 125 miles a week. Wow. That lifestyle is just, it's cumbersome yeah. and nothing else can fit in it. It's basically eat, run, sleep, eat, yeah. run, sleep. So I loved it. But once I picked up the guitar, it kind of cracked the, cracked the illusion huh. of it and then put in another <laughs> dream in the place wow. of it. And here I am still going at I love it. it. There are a lot of similarities. There's a lot of, you know, the loneliness of the long distance runner is very much this kind of lifestyle, being alone in the car and driving from gig to gig to gig and getting applause along the way. But it's a pretty solitary journey at the same time. So what path were you heading down in school after track? Obviously, you didn't think about going into music full time at that point, or did you? I was starting to play and I had a couple little things happen, like I got offered a free contract to record some songs and that kind of thing happened in college. After college, I, I worked in Boston as a social worker, working with inner city kids at a school. And I did that for about four or five years before I started to drift into the open mics. And by the time I was 26, I had quit my day job right. and was full-time, full-on folk musician. That's amazing because not everybody is confident enough to do that at such a young age. So you obviously were writing your own music. Were you doing any covers or just your own originals? No, that was the beautiful thing about Boston. You weren't coming out of a covers band scene. You were coming out of an open mic scene and then graduating mm. to those nights that weren't open mics where they had some headliner in or a national headliner. And it was either you or you were the opening act. And it was a beautiful transformation that you could just go right from an open mic into making money <laughs> at that same very same club. That's awesome. Club Passim is one of the clubs? Yeah, it was. And a place called the Old Vienna Coffee House and the Nameless Coffee House. And they had open mics there. And eventually I was asked to be the opener for a headlining act. And then I was headlining myself. And it was one of these periods of time where there's a hot place, like Seattle was hot with grunge music and Atlanta was hot with R&B and Athens, Georgia was hot with indie college rock. And Boston in that period of time in the 90s was hot for singer-songwriters who were in the folk vein, you know, writing quirky or beautiful or thoughtful songs. There were five or six radio stations and some of them were big commercial stations playing us. And I went from playing to nobody to playing to a thousand people pretty much within a year. Right place at the right time. 
Yeah. And if, if all those other people weren't there, if Dar Williams wasn't there, if Patty Griffin wasn't there, yeah. if Martin Sexton wasn't there and Vance Gilbert, Katie Curtis, if all these other people weren't there, I wouldn't have improved. I wouldn't have had anyone to compete against. And, you know, we were all vying for the same slots. So it immediately raised the bar there and made us all better than what we were. What an incredible graduating class of names you just named. Yeah. And there are so many more that I didn't name that were equally as auspicious. I feel very, very lucky in the right place place at the right time and putting the hours in, you know, that 10,000 hours thing is very important. And we had great mentors, you know, there are people in the generation of people ahead of us, Bill Morrissey, Patty Larkin, Cheryl Wheeler, Cliff Eberhardt, folks like that, that were paving the way and creating this new American folk scene for us. And we just followed in their footsteps and they taught us a lot. As you have done for sort of my tier of folk musicians and songwriters, you are who we looked to, to watch how it's done. And we say the same things about you. It's amazing. Like if, if Ellis Paul wasn't there before us. And so I just wanted you to know that. Well, thank you. I feel like I'm repaying a debt I owe Bill Morrissey, especially, mm -hmm. and, uh, and all those people really, but Bill, especially. Did you get to spend a lot of time with him? I did. He produced my first record and we did some shows together. And when you're doing an album, you're spending a hundred plus hours with the person in the studio and working on the songs and the arrangements outside of the studio. And he to me is me to so many other people. I feel huh. like, first of all, like how the hell do you make a living doing this? And here's this guy. Right. It was like Van Gogh lived in my town. It's like, I, I need to talk to him and find out what bits of wisdom and suggestions he has, because he's obviously brilliant and he's obviously making a living at it. And his willingness to just open up and tell stories uh -huh. and give suggestions and lead me in directions that I wouldn't have seen myself. It's part of my master plan to do that for as many people as I can, because I can save people so much oh, time, Bless you You know, with just simple suggestions. Yeah. And so I make sure I'm doing that all the time. Yeah. So you just kind of went up to him and started chatting. Was it a show? Did you go see him a lot? Yeah, I saw him a couple of times. And then his girlfriend at the time brought him to see me. He came up to me after a show and he said, I think I'd like to produce you. Would you be willing to work with wow. me? I was just assembling the money to do my first album. And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, at that time, I considered Bill to be the best folk singer in the country. I don't think anyone was writing more profoundly than he was. So just to be in his presence for those months was just really profound for yeah. me. Did you feel like it brought you up to a different, a different level after that experience? Yeah. I mean, it made me walk a little taller in my shoes huh. that I got approval from him. Yeah. And plus, I'm a, a hands-on mentor. Like, I'll dig in. And he was more mentoring from sharing stories and mentoring from example. He didn't tell me how to book shows right. or or even how to write songs, except through example. Huh. And whereas I'm really trying to get people to look at every line, every note, every chord, because it starts with great songs. I think a lot of younger artists who know of your work or see you at concerts and festivals and conferences probably don't realize how easy it is to just come up and talk to you. I mean, you welcome that. Obviously, it's what you do as well. We're going to talk about your teaching and your mentoring and things that you offer. Yeah, I think that a lot of young artists are afraid to talk to people like you who they look up to. I'm as nervous as I'll get out right now. <laughs> and we've known each other a long time. We have. Yeah. That, that's ridiculous. I know. They get over it pretty quickly, oh. <laughs> though. I generally shoot the shit with people in a way that <laughs> maybe I'm too casual about it, too, at times, because it's disarming when someone is so easily themselves. <laughs> 
even though you're just yeah. meeting them. But I like kind of like to cut to the chase. And there's so many talented people out there and it's so hard. I mean, there's no school. It's not like you go to the Stanford right. of folk music and you get a degree and then you have <laughs> Fortune 500 people calling you. You learn how to do this in a closet and then you just hope that people yeah, will like it. True. And then you step out of the closet and it's like every step is like walking on ice. You feel like you're going to break through and your parents and all their friends and all your siblings are going to say, ah, we were right. We told you. I feel like everyone has a story to tell. Every story is convertible into a song and every song has a chance to change someone's lives. And it's not rocket science. You just have to focus and, and work hard. So I'm, I'm all for everybody. There's room for everybody and everybody's voice here. That's awesome. Speaking of stories, you tell stories during the course of your concerts all the time. It's just such a great part of the evening. You know, it's not just the songs, it's the stories. Do you enjoy that part? Yeah, I kind of consider them as important as the songs themselves. And a lot of mm -hmm. those stories get memorized to the point where the pauses in between lines are memorized. I know exactly <laughs> it's 3.5 seconds. I mean, I'm not there with a stopwatch, but after you've told them a hundred times, you know, you just, the rhythm of them is, and then there's a point where they yeah. get stale and they have to be retired and you know, you're not delivering. Okay. Yep. Them with the same kind of enthusiasm and you got to let them go and start rewriting new ones and putting new songs into the show. And there's a cycle of about a year, year and a half. I feel like I can get away with. Right. Sure. We all know that a lot of songs that you put out to the community touch a lot of people. But has there ever been a song that surprised you completely that might have touched an audience member or somebody might have come up to you and said, you know, this song, is there one that surprised you? They all kind of surprise me. And, you know, I just offered on my website these handwritten lyrics, like I'll write down whatever song you want and then I'll illustrate yeah, them. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, God. You know, they're more than just scratches yep. on a page. There's actually like a scene created and it's related to the song. And sometimes I'll customize them to whatever the people want. And so like I'm expecting like they're all going to pick the world ain't slowing down. Like my songs that are the most well-known, the most famous hmm. on whatever relative skill I have of that. But it's like everybody's got their own thing. You know, everyone's got their own little <laughs> song in the cupboard, that one song. And I don't understand why they pick that one. Yeah. The songwriting process with a listener, it's like they have a shared creative understanding what the song is. You write a song, it's about your life or something you see, but when they hear it, they're seeing their hometown, right. their husband, their wife, their childhood, all the details of it gets mm -hmm. co-owned by them. I think that's why they say, you know, that's my song. They don't do that with the Mona Lisa. They don't say that's my painting, but they say that with songs. So nothing surprises me now because it's been happening for 30 years. Right. One song that's just kind of thrown off the cuff can be gold to someone else's life. So I can't figure it out. But some songs surprised me. Like Alice's Champagne Palace, which is about a bar in Alaska. Right, right. It's the closest thing that I have to a drinking song. <laughs> and I didn't know it at the time. I was just writing about this place. But so many people were hungry for a thirsty for a drinking song in my catalog. Oh, that yeah. <laughs> that became a favorite. And right. that definitely surprised me how often that got asked for at shows. <laughs> and then it became a, a song I do almost every night because of that. You take a rickety plane from Seattle up into Anchorage You step on the concrete gazing at the midnight sun Jump on my pickup and we'll drive we'll Bring your troubles down Highway 9 I got a 
fold-out couch and a job lined up at the cannery. You hitch a ride to Homer, Alaska, brother. The drinks will be on me. Raise a glass, lift a chalice. Welcome to Alice's Champagne Palace, the finest bar in the Strip in Homer, Alaska. You're from New York, L.A., Dallas. You'll find a home at the Champagne Palace. Alice will pour you a cold one. You go ahead and ask her if you're running away to Alaska. There you go. We tried to, on this show and obviously everywhere else, to figure out what folk means. But I feel like you are making it happen right now by traveling all over the place, by telling stories, by taking stories and putting them to song. You write poetry. Do you enjoy reciting poetry as well? It depends on the situation. Yeah. Sometimes I'm writing and I'm thinking, how would I make this into a song? It's so much better if I just speak it. It's so much more huh. kind of real and believable. It's like sometimes, right. you know, when you're singing and rhyming at the same time, you're like, God, I'm, I'm singing and I'm rhyming. <laughs> and I'm playing guitar. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Do I look like an idiot? Like, are people really buying into this? And then <laughs> like, if I just said this, it might have more power. Wow. So sometimes you have to strip away some of the artifice of the guitar and the melody and, yeah. and then it's just naked truth. So sometimes it feels best as a poem, but I don't want to whack everybody over the head with that too, because I'm, I'm doing these stories and they're definitely written bits. I've spent as much time writing them as I do the songs. Right. So, and believability is sort of what makes folk music the great art form that it is. The less you pose, the better you are in a lot of ways. That's why somebody like Woody Guthrie can be the most mm. important folk musician. And as soon as Bob Dylan started wearing polka dots and, <laughs> and tight beetle boots and beetle jeans, you know, not that that music isn't great, because trust me, yeah. I, I love him no matter what he did. But some of that earnestness right. uh, was just sort of thrown out the window and artifice came in. And It's a shame. It is a shame. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Lady Gaga is great, but she wouldn't make a great folk singer. It's kind of like that. <laughs> Interesting. Have you ever actually published any of your poetry? Are there any poetry books with Ellis Paul's name on it? Yeah, I have a book called Notes from the Road, and it's all of my lyrics up until the year it was released, which was around 96, okay. 97. And it has the poems in it as well. Lovely. That's awesome. Yeah. You were speaking of Woody Guthrie, and I know you were a big part of the uh, Ribbon of Highway Endless Skyway tour that the family put together a bunch of years ago. I remember... It came to the Folk Alliance in Nashville. Yeah. What was it like to be part of that? Well, probably the best part, because I'd already been down the woody rabbit hole, you know, <laughs> in like 92, 93, I drove to Okima by myself. Oh, wow. I went to his house, the structure, okay. it's basically broken down and just a bunch of rocks at this point and was back then, but I'd already read everything I could and learned a few of the songs. And so I was definitely in the cult of woody, if you would. <laughs> But not a lot of people in New England were kind of that way. That's a Dust Bowl hobo, not yeah. a contemporary poet that needs our respect. But then I was thrown in on this tour with all these mostly Texas and Oklahoma-based musicians who revere him like I do. And I found this subculture of people in a whole different part of geography of what folk music is. There's the New England singer-songwriter, and then there's the Texas, mm -hmm. the Red Dirt mm -hmm. and Texas, you know, Americana acts and very, very different, but still under the same umbrella. 
And they embraced me and brought me into their club and I embraced them and developed these lifelong friendships with Slade Cleves and Jimmy LaFave and Eliza Gilkison oh, and, the favorites. Oh. and Sam Baker yeah. and all these other folks that led me to just some incredible artists who approach songwriting completely differently, less poetically, but just as honest yeah. and earnest is just a lot more dust in what they do. And right. yeah, it had a really big impact on me. And then singing Woody Guthrie's songs every night. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that was like in spending time with the family. And then you had the opportunity to take a set of his lyrics. I don't know if the lyrics had a title or if you put the title God's Promise to it. And then you wrote the music. Am I correct? Yeah, I went to the family archive was in New York at that point. Nora had invited me in to put music to his lyrics, and I can't remember how she found huh. me. Oh, no, I do remember. I have a Woody Guthrie tattoo on my right shoulder. <laughs> and the moment that I showed Nora the tattoo, she met her husband, Michael, at a bar <laughs> at Folk Alliance in Memphis. <laughs> and she wanted to see the tattoo. It led to her getting married and then led to a phone call where she said, hey, why don't you come on down and go through these lyrics and find a song that you can put music to? So it was pretty, pretty great. You cannot make that up, folks. So perfect. You chose that set of lyrics. I did. Yeah, I chose two or three songs and I didn't yeah. want to get greedy because I know that the family was reaching out to a lot of different musicians to do these things. So mm -hmm. I took two or three and then that song in particular, just the way the lyrics were written, it was incredibly poetic. Oh. And I was backstage in Connecticut at a little venue and five minutes before I went on I just came up with a chord change and I brought the lyrics on stage and I did it oh man yeah I didn't promise you skies painted blue colored flowers all your days through I didn't promise you sun with no Joys without sorrows, peace without pain. All that I promise is strength for this day. Rest for my worker and light on your way. I give you truth when you need it. My help from above, my undying friend. This is me fangirling right now, but it is one of my most favorite songs on the planet. Oh, thank you. You have a version of you doing it, and it must have been during soundcheck or something, at the Guthrie Center in Massachusetts. Am I right? Was it during soundcheck? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, it was before show. That's what I figured. And I'm mesmerized by it. I watch it all the time. <laughs> Folks, if you do not know Ellis Paul, or if you've not seen that particular video, just YouTube, Ellis Paul, God's Promise, Guthrie Center. Now I have to ask you, what tuning are you performing that in? I call it Open Joni because it's actually a Joni Mitchell tuning. <laughs> she uses it all the time. It's C, G, D, G, B, E. It's an open G with the bass string turned all the way down to C. I do it on a high strung guitar. Oh. So yeah, it's more impossible to get it just right. Get it. That's never going to happen here, Prashker. I'll just keep watching the video. <laughs> yeah. And talk about rabbit holes, like tunings, if you want to go down that one. Every tuning needs a guitar. And so I'm staring at a room full of six guitars and every one of them is tuned in a different <laughs> tuning right now. So in that respect, are you kind of almost enjoying the fact that you're playing these concerts from home because you don't have to schlep all these guitars and you can just turn around and grab one? 
Yeah, it's great. There's a lot of silver linings in this disaster that we're mm-hmm. in. I miss the sound of applause and I'm, I miss the sound of laughter when I'm playing. Yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, I decided that I was going to do this Friday night show. Every Friday night, I do something called Ellis Paul's Traveling Medicine Show, and I bring guests, and I have a theme, and I pick pop songs, popular songs, and some folk songs that fit the theme that aren't mine. It's the first time I've ever been a cover act, and I've done Elton John songs and Beatles songs yep, and cool. <laughs> Dan Fogelberg songs and Rolling Stone songs, and obviously I'm doing Woody and Dylan here and there and Joni Mitchell. Yep. I'm just picking these popular songs. Because I never got the bar time. I never learned those chord changes and I never had that vocabulary. It was always trial and error from the very beginning of like what chord sounds good next to this chord and, you know, just stumbling forward through a song like that. Right. And I feel like in the past year, my musical vocabulary has progressed to the point where I've got all these other changes in my skin. And I feel like the lyrical things that these people are doing are so different than how I would choose. And I'm learning from just great songwriters. I learned how to play Vincent by Don McLean and Angel from oh, Montgomery. So you're doing it completely backwards. Yeah, totally, totally. And it's been so fun. Yeah, you're doing it completely backwards. I love it. But I haven't written much. I feel like the pandemic and the episode with the election, just the weight of it just felt too heavy for me. And so right. I took some comfort doing other people's music yeah. and I recorded a little album of those songs and put it out on my Patreon site. And now I'm gearing up. I'm writing again and hopefully we'll have an album here in the next four or five months yay of original music oh fantastic that's great news yeah good for me too yeah i bet i know you've collaborated with a lot of amazing artists but can you tell the audience about your relationship with vance gilbert Sure. For those who don't know who Vance Gilbert is, another wonderful singer songwriter from the northeast you just got to look him up words fail me right now because he's just that awesome <laughs> Yeah, you might as well just be hitting a bongo trying to describe him because (laughs) words will not suffice. And you could probably do that pretty well, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, there you go. um, I met Vance at something called the Naked City Coffee House in Boston, which was a foyer on the second floor of this building in Alston, Massachusetts. (laughs) Completely illegal gathering. You go up the (laughs) stairs and it'd be nine o'clock at night and there'd be like 100, 150 people jammed into this place. And... Suddenly, this black guy comes up the stairs, really thin, with a baseball cap, and he starts just tearing it up. Not only just like playing guitar better than anybody and singing better than anybody, but playing jazz chords at a full club. I know. This is like the one, four, five thing. The C, G, F thing was not happening with him. It was like everything with a seventh and a a ninth and eleventh. All of his chords had numbers attached. And it was like an alien walked in. He was just transfixing for everybody. He was funnier than everybody. He sang better than everybody. And he was playing in a language nobody understood. And I fell in love with him. And he and I became best friends and we're touchstones, you know. We're so different. I come from the whitest state in America. I was born in northern Maine. I'm basically Canadian with American citizenship. Yes, you are. (laughs) And Vance is from Philly and he grew up, you know, I grew up listening to top 40 radio on a dusty tractor and he was listening Casey Kasem. yeah yeah that kind of thing and he was listening yeah. to R&B in Philadelphia and jazz so we are so different but so much alike we just love music we love songwriting and we've traveled a lot together done a ton of shows we released a record together so it's sort of the odd couple 
And we need to do more shows. Yeah, you guys have to. I saw a show of yours. It was just awesome. But I don't think I've ever laughed so hard as during your birthday concert. Yeah. Everybody did a, a song to honor your birthday. And they either did a song that reminded them of you or one of your songs. Dan Navarro's song, just, I could not stop crying. It was just I awesome. So but good. then Vance at the end, <laughs> Vance at the end decided he was going <laughs> to. Yeah. He was going to tribute you. Can't explain it. he took one of my songs and he did this as an improvised piece he rewrote the lyrics describing how i write songs (laughs) and yeah it's on my patreon site if y'all want to take a look at it you can go there oh good oh good okay so it's there yeah if people are part of your patreon page they can see it yeah it's not to be believed folks it really isn't for a dollar a month that's worth the price of admission right there (laughs) it is Trust me, it's pure brilliance. And I wish I could have seen your face as it was happening. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of being on the road with him. Yeah, yeah. It's me publicly crying and not in pain, yeah. like sadness, but like laughing to the point where I could not speak because yep. I was crying. <laughs> it's like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin in a way. It is. The show just goes in directions. I'm not in control. I mean, that's clear. I don't think he's in control, but he has the bridle in his yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. I asked him to do this and he agreed. So we're going to set that up. But I wish I had the two of you on at the same time. Oh, yeah. We'll come back and do that. Okay. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be really cool. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love that. (laughs) Question. How did you get involved in writing for kids? Did book writing or songwriting for kids come first or at the same time? The babies came first. Me having... (laughs) Right. (laughs) That happens. Yeah, that was it. Like I had kids and I'm like, I want to leave something for them when I leave the house and I hit the road because I'm gone 200 days out of the year. I'm missing so much of their childhood. Everybody's got a story of all their troubles, all the glories. Tell me yours, you cannot bore me. I love to listen to you. All your bumps and all your scratches, all your holes and all your patches. It's you, it's true, you have no matches. There's a hero in you. You can Everybody's got a tale of how they chased a great white whale. Some succeeded, some just failed. Trying's what you got to do. Cause in the trying, you feel you're flying. A whole wide world's beneath your line. It's you, it's true, there's no denying. There's a hero in you. Another silver lining of the pandemic is that I can see them anytime I want now, which is amazing for all of us. But when I had kids, I just was determined to write for them and then you know, involve them in the process of it so they could see what it was like and see the recording equipment. I had my kids sing on the songs with me and it was really fun. And then it got to the point where one of them got turned into a book and which led to another book. And so it's a sideline. I'm thrilled by it because it's still part of my mission. Woody Guthrie had children's music. Johnny Cash put children's music. Pete Seeger did. And I want to continue to do that. I'd love if when I leave the planet, I'd love to have 10 children's records and 10 Hmm. children's books out there and 40 or 50 adult records that are Hmm. completely adult. Oh, man. Do you enjoy doing shows for kids? I do. Sometimes I'm grateful they're only like 45 minutes long because it's kind of like... (laughs) How long can you hold your breath and keep them entertained yeah. before all hell breaks loose? Yeah. But it's yeah. it's like corralling <laughs> cats at times. But it's so great. There are times when I go into a school and 
they already know the music. I just strum one chord and they take over. Oh, wow. And I'll have 500 Dang. kids singing at the top of their lungs, every single word. And I just play the guitar and just listen. Oh, and seriously? Everybody's got a story of Polly. Tell me yours, you cannot play. I love to listen to you. All your bumps and all your scratches, all your holes and all your passes. It's you, it's true, you have no match. There's a hero in you. Those are probably the most oh. mind-blowing times I've ever had on stage is when the kids take over and they're singing your songs back to you with incredible enthusiasm. Wow. It's just amazing. And that's why we do this. Yeah. And the 3,000 other hours a day that we spend on the business side of it. And nobody does the business side of it better than you. I mean, you know how to work all of it. I know you've had a manager over the years. Mm. I don't know if you have a manager now, but what was the whole process like? <laughs> I was managed by a guy named Ralph Jacketing for many, many years, over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it was great. And we discovered each other at the same time. You know, I was a fledgling artist. He was a fledgling music person who wanted to be a manager and maybe wanted to start a record label. Mm -hmm. And we just hooked up to each other and just went for it. So there was a lot of learning. Yeah, you learned together, I guess. Right? Yeah, yeah, he didn't have a big Rolodex. We just kind of made friends as we went. And enough people were impressed with both of us that we made this thing happen. But by the time... I don't know, four or five years ago, Ralph was working at Berkeley College of Music teaching management, and suddenly management was more of a part-time job for him than a full-time job. Right. And I think we had kind of played it out. It was kind of yeah. like, do we continue on this path and not change or grow, or do we separate and me try and find a way to reinvent it and make... Hmm better money doing it. Cause I had kids at that point and, and I still do, and they're about to go to college. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I wanted to take a couple years and see what I could do doing it by myself, but I recognize I'd like to find another company and I'm in, in talks with a few people about management now. Great. And I do have a decent enough career that people are eager to work with me, you know, which is great. And I have a really, really dedicated fan base and Everywhere I go, people show up, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Those worries I had in my 20s, like, would I outnumber the audience tonight? Are no longer there. And, <laughs> oh, God, no. And I think people uh, see the fact that I'm doing so much, like, you know, teaching and making books and making yes, albums. And the art, the artwork. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And I can't really do all of it well and manage myself. You know, I really should just be in charge of content and hand over the rest of right. it. So okay. once the pandemic is over, I'll likely be signing with someone and rebooting this thing to see what the last chapter is. I feel like I have 20 years or so left. In Hell me. yeah. That's going to be great. <laughs> I know you have a couple of movie soundtrack placements a while back. How did that come about? Did you guys work on that together, you and Ralph? Yeah. Or did somebody approach you? I know it's a track for me, myself, and Irene with Jim Carrey and Renee Zellweger. Baby,
there's that. We got three Fairly Brothers movies and a few independent movies, a couple television shows. And some of that was cold calling. And oftentimes movie producers will be like, well, I'm doing a movie about Nellie Bly. So I'm going to put Nellie Bly song into Google and it'll lead them to Ellis Paul because Ellis Paul has a song about Nellie Bly. If Ellis Paul has a song about Jackie Robinson, we got contacted by the folks who are putting out the movie about Jackie Robinson because I had a song. They wanted to hear it. So there are these connections that happen like that over and over and over again. Those things happen. And sometimes they lead to contracts and movie placements and sometimes they don't. And Ralph had befriended the fairly brothers back in the 80s on Martha's Vineyard. He used to be drinking buddies with those guys. Hmm. And they ran off to Hollywood and became these big producer director types. And so Ralph would just send them the stuff that his artists were creating. And I was in his stable of artists and they really hooked on to what I did. And they ended up using me in three separate movies. That stuff is still keeping me alive today. Those movies are still in rotation and I'm forever grateful to the Fairley brothers for those because they still put food in my kids' bellies. Fantastic. What a great experience it must have been just to have all that go right. Yeah. There was one moment where I was in Los Angeles and we went to Universal Studios just to walk around and we bumped into the guy that was in charge of the soundtrack of the movie. And he brought us into the sound studio at Universal <laughs> while they were putting the song and mastering the song into the movie in a huge movie theater in the middle of Universal. So I got to watch this whole process go down. Wow. My eyes were crying and I was like, it was just so, because it sounded like <laughs> better than anything I'd ever heard. It was me coming through the speakers. Yeah, and larger than life. It was completely shocking <laughs> and a memory I'll never forget. Ellis Paul goes Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. I know you worked on a couple of albums that you made. A couple of them were produced by Jerry Murata, who is a drummer, a drummer for Peter Gabriel. And I just adore his drumming and yeah. I'm a big fan. Just a personal question. What was that like? I'll tell you this because I know you'll appreciate it. I was sitting in the studio and Jerry was playing oh. drums <laughs> to the tracks through headphones. And I just sat there and I watched him play and I'm listening on headphones as he's playing, and he's just inventing these parts on the fly. But it was like watching Brezhnikov <laughs> dance. It just had that kind of, I cannot believe someone can create this kind of noise with his hands just by hitting things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, it, if I close my yeah. eyes, I go there, I just watching the, the motion of him moving and how smooth he was and how beautiful it was to watch, and then all of the sonic textures. He's a percussive drummer. He's not a meat and potatoes drummer. He's constantly yeah. creating flavors and spices where he's laying each yeah, beat exactly. and what the tone of each of the drums are. And the drums are really weird. He's <laughs> playing a tree with skin on it. You know, wow. He's hitting it and it sounds like he's playing a sequoia and just that craziness of how he's one of the best drummers in the world. He played with Gabriel. He really is. I know. And he played with the Indigo Girls for many years, Hall and Oates, Poco. Oh, wow. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Then how did you meet him? He was looking to produce people. He had produced okay. a couple folks. He produced a beautiful record for Kristen Hall, who ended up being in the country band Sugarland. And she was sort of a folk singer-songwriter at the time, and it was just a gorgeous record. And when I heard it, we tracked him down. If I'm driving down the road with my kids... 
he'll come on. You know, he's on almost everybody's record. He's played with everybody from McCartney to Cheryl Crow to <laughs> Daryl Hall and John Oates. And I'll say, hey, kids, that's my drummer right there. <laughs> and it's like every fifth song. That's my guy. <laughs> And they just sit in the back and roll their eyes. Do they think you're cool? No. God, no. No. They're coming around. (laughs) How old are they now? My oldest is 16. She's going to be 17 in July. My younger daughter just turned 14. Are we driving yet? Yeah, my oldest daughter. I'm giving her driving lessons tomorrow, actually. (laughs) But I just bought them record players and I'm buying them vinyl and they're loving it. And I'm buying them Sinatra and Aretha Franklin. I'm just giving them baby boomer classics. Good, good. They're really loving it. So I'm happy about that. (laughs) Do they come to your shows? They have uh, here in Charlottesville. They've never seen me do anything on the road. Okay. That's yet to come. Hopefully soon. Might you do a song for our audience tonight? Sure. I've got one queued up here. This is called I Ain't No Jesus. Awesome. Sounds pretty good. All right.
preach to the masses when you can't even talk to the girl. You get a little courage from holy wine, but then your speech gets slain. The sound of one woman clapping. I could not help myself. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for doing that. It's one of my favorites. I have been at the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival with five, six, seven thousand people all singing to that song, and I've been uh, in a small room and a house concert where everybody's singing to it in beautiful harmonies. That's what you get at an Ellis Paul show, folks. The real deal. Oh, thank you. I love that song. I love playing it. It's one of those ones that I can do without having warmed up. You know, that's one of the reasons why I play it so much. Right. I'm going to ask a really tough question, I think. Okay. How do you think you continue to make relevant and inspiring music year after year after year? You know, I hope that is true. It feels true. I know I'm recommitted to it. I think my marriage went down in my 40s and I have kids and I kind of got lost a while there. I was fortunate enough to be doing children's mm -hmm. music at the time. And I feel kind of like in my 40s that my best material was what I was writing for kids. Mm. And maybe because my love life was in shambles and <laughs> the kids were sort of a pure inspiration. But I feel like I'm back in a way yeah. and I'm committed to writing about the human condition and not just examining my own life story, but the stories that we kind of need to hear right now, especially right now, because we're in such trouble. And I just want to get better. Yeah, we're both in our 50s. And I think that's an interesting place. I don't know about you, but I finally feel like I'm musically more confident. And I don't feel like I have to prove anything to anybody, but I can actually just enjoy the process of making the audience happy. Yeah. I feel like that's what you were meant to do is just be there for all of us and make amazing music that touches us all. And you're just so good at it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I just wanted to thank you for that. I hope you keep going. I will. Yeah. I kind of feel like the best is yet to come because I'm not worried anymore. Right. The worry is kind of out of the equation because you're worried in the beginning about pleasing. Exactly. Yep. A record label or pleasing a manager or pleasing these yep. club owners. And now that I have an audience, I'm really about like, how do I please myself? Right. Say the things that need to be said and test the audience at the same time. Not, not just try and rewrite the same songs that I've already written, but bring them to new places, bring myself to new places, improve as a guitar player, as an arranger, yeah. as, as a conceptualizer. 
there are a lot of things I can't do that I could do in my 20s. You know, I have lost notes off my voice and there's a lot more dust and grit in my voice now than the purity is not so much there. I listen to those early records and I'm almost embarrassed <laughs> at how naked they sound. And baby voice. <laughs> yeah, the baby voice. Like, God, get this guy a diaper. <laughs> But now I'm like, well, this is what I got. I don't have the instrument that I used to have, but I'm better conceptualizer, a better editor, mm -hmm. as good of a guitar player as I've ever been, and maybe a better arranger. So I'm still looking for those pockets where I can improve. And then I focus on them with each album. I'm like, okay, what aspect of this album is going to take you to a place you've never been before? And then I follow through. Well, there's also the whole mentoring thing and teaching thing, which I want folks to know that you do, and that's out there on your website. And one of the things that I so love about you is that when I was working with the folks at the NERFA conference, and I kind of approached you to do the keynote speech, I couldn't wait. And I know you were a little nervous about it. Oh my God, yeah. But you knocked it out of the park. Oh, thank you. I was nervous. It was very inspirational. 30 years ago, I was given a guitar by a woman named Allison Higgins. I was, I was seeing her sister. We broke up. She knew I was heartbroken, and she gave me her guitar because she knew it would work. I took it down to college, and I learned three chords, C, an F with a bar, G, and I learned every song that would fall into those comfortably. And I played and played, and I annoyed everybody that... that that lived with me at the time, but there was something about it and I knew that I wanted to make this my life story. There was something about the connectedness with the shifting of my fingers on the neck, the voice resonating against what the guitar was doing. It just felt primal. I was hearing myself for the first time. I was seeing myself for the first time. And I found out this was me. This is who I wanted to be. Thank you for doing that. My girlfriend, Laurie, really guided me through that. And it was good because she held my hand through a lot of the prepping of it. Because you want to tell your story, but you want to inspire those people who want to have a story that's like yours. Mm -hmm. It's not a narcissistic kind of tale. It's like a tale of examples, missteps, and little victories and a little defeats, mm -hmm. a few big victories, a few big defeats, <laughs> and just say, you know, these are the potholes. This is the road you're on. And here are the ones that I stepped in. And here are the little yeah. things that I did that were right. It was a really nice moment for me. And I'm really so happy you asked. Thank you. Well, thank you for doing it. You're welcome. The uh, six degrees of separation, or as I like to call it, six degrees of Prashker. <laughs> That's good. I'll tell you an interesting story that you may or may not know. You were talking about Laurie McAllister. We've known each other, Laurie and I, since 1997. We met at an open mic and we worked on her first album together. And she said, you've got to go to this thing, this event. And I said, well, probably not, but thanks. And she said, no, 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 you have to go to this event. It's just perfect for you. It's this conference called NERFA, which is the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference, which I've spoken about on this show before, a place where you can go and showcase for the people that book the venues. You meet other artists, you collaborate, you go to workshops, you make friends, you become family. And she said, you need to go to this. And I said, I don't really think I'm interested, but thanks. She wouldn't leave it alone. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Lori? Not exactly. Anyway, right. she <laughs> every day she kept insisting, and <laughs> and I finally said to her, Lori, to be honest, I can't afford to go, and you need to know that she paid for me to go to my first Nerfa. Oh my God, she's the best. And if she hadn't done that, my whole world 
would be very different. I mean, my entire life, my entire world, my entire being would be very, very, very different. So I owe Laurie McAllister so much. That's great. And by the way, she doesn't pay for anything over here. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I think I just bought her a phone today. I'm pretty Uh, sure. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm just kidding. No, she's so supportive and she's great. It's amazing, right? She won't do anything for herself, but she'll open her wallet for any friend in need. That's how she is. Yep. I am very, 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 very happy that you two found each other and are spending your time together. And she's also an incredible songwriter. She is. And one of the best voices on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. All of that. Yeah. I'm very lucky. And we are very different. And we talk about our differences every day because they are both like very good for us and very challenging sometimes. But she's a joy to be with. And uh, we laugh every day. It's just easy. Good, good. The easiest relationship I've ever had. And I'm very grateful. That makes me very happy. And please give her my love. I will. Yeah. Okay. I ask every artist this and I need to ask this because I cannot wait for the answer. Please tell the audience something quirky, silly, crazy, weird about you that they would never guess. Oh my God. Let me see. I love cartoons. No way. I love cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have the entire Far Side collection. I love it. I have the entire Charlie Brown and Peanuts collection. All of that stuff. I love political cartoons. Wow. So you're talking illustrated cartoons. Yeah. Illustrated cartoons, poking fun at social things. And yeah. Yeah. How did you get into drawing yourself? Because you do draw a lot of posters and things for folks. And we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, but did that just come about organically? I think cartooning and illustration, writing, like writing books instead of writing songs, all that right brain stuff that my parents did, you know, they should have handed me an abacus and (laughs) and a computer, (laughs) but it was crayons and a trumpet. And so I went right instead of left. Yeah. Anything right brain writing, drawing. I love R. Crumb. Oh, yeah. And if people go to my Patreon site, they'll see each one of my tears is like a picture of John Prine that I drew myself or Charlie Chaplin or Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger or Odetta. All of the tears are illustrated by my artwork. It's a creative life. It's where I find joy. They're fabulous. Yep. I don't read many books. I don't hike. I don't travel outside of work, but I do draw. That's the one hobby I guess I have. Any crazy road stories that you're allowed to Tell us on the air. (laughs) I have like books of crazy (laughs) stories. On a cold day in Madison, Wisconsin, a man naked except for a pair of underwear was running down the boulevard, I think Milwaukee Boulevard, trying to hijack cars. And I was walking on the sidewalk in between gigs and uh, he ran by me and I filed a police report and helped him get caught. I was in a drive-by shooting what? with a crossfire going over my car in Chicago. <gasps> it's just folk music, folks. <laughs> there are stories like that where just random travel stories where you're just at the wrong place oh. at the wrong time. And then there are amazing love stories, meeting people, both who are friends and kind of people that become lovers and just lifelong friends that you meet and have this spectacular night with. And 20 years later, you're still crossing paths and laughing about that moment and creating a new one. I mean, the one thing about being on the road is it's lonely and isolating at times, but it's the greatest adventure. It is. How lucky are we? 
Yeah. Like I just think back at all of these beautiful places and how, how well I know the country, like the back of my hand. I feel like I know all these major interstates and, right. and these byros and these little restaurants and bars, right. just nooks and crannies in the country that no one else sees but us. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on the interweb? Well, there's always my website, which is ellispaul.com, but I'm leaning towards people going over to Patreon. Can you explain what Patreon is? It's a subscription channel, and it's where about a thousand people have signed up to watch me do my thing. I'm in a bit of a little fishbowl there. Does that blow you away that 900 people have signed up? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, I've had albums that have sold in the tens and tens of thousands. So Mm -hmm. there are no albums to buy now. Right. They're not buying us in that way. But in this way, they're using the exact same money that they paid for a CD to get all of this digital content and live stream shows and exclusive stuff and albums and demos and stuff from my back catalog, me doing a radio interview in 1992 or me at a show in 1999, you know, and then all the new stuff I'm writing and this covers record that I just put out exclusively there. It's the next sea change thing that all of us are probably Mm going to have to take a look at. There should be some public consumption of your music, but there should be some really special consumption in a place where people get to watch what it is, what the backstage stuff is, what the process and writing these songs are, you know, the demos versus the studio version versus somebody's cover of that song. They get to see that evolution of the song and And then they get art and anything else that I'm doing, books and classes on songwriting. So it's pretty great. And have you gotten feedback from people that they are enjoying the content, that they're looking for different content, that it means the world to them? Like, what's the feedback been like? Oh, yeah. I open it up to discussions weekly. I do a Patreon show where a gathering of Patreon people come and we do an all request show. And then I watch the feed and I say, okay, guys, well, who would you like to be on the show? What kind of show would you like? So, you know, a lot of people said, we want you to do a Valentine's Day show. Should I do love songs or what should the theme be? (laughs) And they said, oh, we want you to do songs of the 70s, like love songs from the 70s. Yay. So I'm going to have a Valentine's Day show. It's going to be love songs of the 70s. I'm going to invite my friends to play and do songs and covers. And and so they're guiding the content, giving me feedback on songs when I put them out to them first. Oh. I get their feedback and I make changes if something doesn't seem right. It's sort of an ongoing conversation. It's been great. Fantastic. I can't thank you enough for doing this, Alice. It's just been like a joy, an honor. I'm still nervous. My pleasure, Cheryl. <laughs> You did great. This is one of the best interviews that I've done in a long, 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 long time. So thank you. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Well, what I want it to be is just a conversation between friends. There it was. There it was. We're blessed. So true. Well, your audience is blessed. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you, Cheryl. For the audience, for other musicians, and thank you for doing what you do. Good luck with the show. Thank you so much. Guys, you've been listening to Ellis Paul here on FolkPod. FolkPod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time. Brother, you just might stay If you're running away